And welcome to the October 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up, Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore, a jurist with a very long history of expressing his blatant homophobia, was suspended from office for the rest of his term on September 30th because of his intransigence in the face of the U.S. Supreme Court's Obergefell ruling. Can you tell us about it, Art? Okay. So, uh, and I I thank you for your (laughs) work on this newsletter, including writing the the headline on the cover, which uh, I can't claim credit for anymore. It's it's Matt Skinner. I saw it on social media, but it was too good not to... No more. (laughs) Alabama Chief Justice Roy Moore suspended from office for the rest of his term, which runs through 2019. Okay, so the the story with Roy Moore. Roy Moore uh, was kicked out as Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice in Alabama in 2003 over the issue of a Ten Commandments monument that he had erected in the lobby of the state Supreme Court building. And uh, it was challenged in court, and a federal district court ordered him to remove it, and he refused, and he was held in contempt, and the uh, disciplinary authorities in Alabama removed him as chief justice. So he decided to take up a political career, but he, unfortunately for him, couldn't win any primaries, so he didn't even get into general elections. So he decided to see if he could get reelected as chief justice again, and he did. The people of Alabama evidently uh, sympathized with him rather than with the disciplinary authorities. So he was elected chief justice again. Uh, He has frequently expressed his contempt and dislike for gay people, which isn't so surprising because he has frequently said that divine law outranks constitutional law, much less state law. Uh, So he was very challenged, of course, early in 2015 when a federal district judge in Alabama held that the state's ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. And uh, she eventually certified that as a class action uh, running against all of the probate judges in the state who were the people who issued the marriage licenses. Uh, But uh, Chief Judge Moore had, before she even did that, in response to her original ruling, which just ran against the one probate judge who was a defendant in the case, uh, he sent a letter to the governor urging resistance, and then in his role as chief administrator of the state court system, he sent out a directive to all of the probate judges in the state that said, you shall not, you shall not issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Uh, And then, uh, I don't know if he was behind it, but a bunch of probate justices judges then filed an action in the state Supreme Court asking for formal guidance and uh, stating that, uh, you know, they were caught between the state, which banned same-sex marriage, and federal court, which uh, says it's constitutionally mandated. Uh, So he recused himself from deciding that case, and the Alabama Supreme Court issued a decision holding that the state's ban on same-sex marriage was constitutional and that the district court was wrong and that the probate judges could not issue marriage licenses. Uh, Well, meanwhile, the uh, federal district judge, uh, Judge Callie Grenade, uh, having certified a class, issued an order running to all of the probate judges 
to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, but she suspended the order pending the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the Obergefell case, which by then had been argued but not decided. Uh, so on June 26, 2015, a day that will live in history, uh, we win the Obergefell case, and very shortly thereafter, Judge Grenad announces that, of course, now her uh, order uh, to the probate judges is in effect. Well, some of the probate judges said, but we're still constrained by the Alabama Supreme Court, which says that we're not supposed to issue marriage licenses. So all across the state, we had sort of like a checkerboard in the state of Alabama. Some counties, the probate judges were issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Some of them, they were not issuing marriage licenses to anybody. They just closed their windows. They said, we're caught between the federal and the state directives, so we're just not going to issue marriage licenses at all. And then there were a few who would continue to issue marriage licenses only to different sex couples. And the Alabama Supreme Court responded to Obergefell by issuing a call to the parties in the case that was pending uh, before it uh, that had been brought by the probate judges uh, for briefing on the question of the effect of the Obergefell decision on the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling, which had been issued on March 3, 2015, which shouldn't have been necessary because under the Supremacy Clause of the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court's decision was binding on them. But uh, Chief Justice Moore has long argued that lower federal courts cannot bind state courts and that Supreme Court decisions are only binding on the parties to the case. So he focused on the language in the Obergefell decision, early in the opinion, where Justice Kennedy acknowledges a fact that the case pending before the court came from the four states of the Sixth Circuit. And he says, therefore, says Chief Justice Moore, that opinion is only binding in the Sixth Circuit and not elsewhere. Of course, conveniently overlooking that later on in the decision, uh, Justice Kennedy made it clear that it applied nationwide. <laughs> that didn't bother Chief Judge Moore. Now, he officially, of course, uh, had recused himself from the earlier stage of the case, but he decided subsequently that the question now pending before the Alabama Supreme Court was different from the question in the earlier case. The earlier case, the question was whether the Alabama marriage ban violated the federal constitution. The question now, uh, on which he felt that he did not have to recuse himself, uh, because he had not officially issued any kind of opinion or directive on it, uh, the question was whether the Supreme Court's decision was binding outside the Sixth Circuit and was thus binding on Alabama courts, even though Alabama had not been a party to the case. Uh, and as to that, the Alabama Supreme Court received its briefs, and it sat there and did nothing for months and months and months. And meanwhile, there was a lot of pressure on these probate judges and in January of this year, 2016, Moore saying that the pressure from the probate judges had just become so intense that they needed guidance, he issued his guidance on January 6th, once again in his role not as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but as Chief Administrator of the state court system, his clarification. Uh, status update. Status update as he defended <laughs> it or as Matt Staver defended it for him in the hearing before the disciplinary people. Uh, so he's, he goes with this whole rigmarole of reciting the chronology of everything that had happened and putting his rather limited view of a Burgerfell. And then he says, of course, 
I can't interpret the Constitution for these people. I'm just acting as an administrator. But as an administrator, I hereby order the probate judges that the March 3, 2015 decision by the Alabama Supreme Court is still in effect, and they are still obligated to comply with it. So he was basically ordering them months after Obergefell to continue denying marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And then uh, the court in March, finally, the Alabama Supreme Court, finally issued its ruling dismissing the case before it without an opinion from the court, but all the judges wrote or signed on to concurring opinions or dissenting opinions. And Moore had his own uh, concurrence and dissent, and Moore basically said he, – he wrote two opinions. In one opinion, he explained why he didn't feel he had to recuse himself, even though he had just months before issued this new directive, in effect taking a position in it as to the effect of the Obergefell decision. Uh, but he did not recuse himself. And furthermore, he wrote a long diatribe about how it was totally inappropriate for the U.S. Supreme Court to be dictating this to the states and blah, 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 and you know divine law and all this kind of stuff. His usual shtick. Uh, so this was a step too far, and uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a ethical complaint against him. And the way it works in Alabama, there's a judicial inquiry commission which receives these ethical complaints, and they explore them, and they come to a decision, and they issue a set of charges if they find there's merit to the ethical uh, complaint. They issued six charges against Judge Moore. Uh, the essence of it was that he was basically encouraging the state court system to defy the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, that he was not recusing himself from cases where he should have recused himself, where he was interfering with the enforcement of the federal district court's injunction, which had been upheld by the 11th Circuit. Uh, and they preferred these charges against him, and it, ca it went to a body called the Alabama Court of the Judiciary, which has, in its entire history, issued fewer than 50 opinions. Uh, one previous one, I believe, removing Judge Moore from the court. Uh, so they basically upheld all the ethical charges against him, and they reached unanimity on upholding all the ethical charges, but they did not reach unanimity on what the penalty should be. And it seems that under Alabama's uh, disciplinary rules, the court of judiciary may not actually remove somebody from a judicial position to which they've been elected for a defined term, which is true of the Supreme Court, unless they are unanimous. Uh, so they did not achieve unanimity on removing him. They did achieve a majority to suspend him for the remainder of his term without pay, which is tantamount to removal but not exactly the same because he still gets to come in and sit in that office in the Supreme Court building. But he can't participate in the operations of the court. He can't vote. He can't he sit on oral arguments. And he doesn't get paid, right? And he doesn't get paid, and I presume he doesn't get his employee benefits either. So he should be out there looking for work, uh, it seems to me, but because not, his term will expire in a few years. So he's been be thrown out. out of office twice. That's quite right. an achievement. And they have age limits on service by uh, yeah. the judges. So because of his age at this point, he won't be able to run after his current term expires. Uh, so I think we can say goodbye to Judge Moore on the local level. Now, uh, if Donald Trump is elected president, of course, there's a possibility he would appoint Roy Moore to the 11th Circuit or the Supreme Court. 
God. Because uh, he he has said in the second presidential debate, and I know, Matt, you wanted us to talk about that today. Uh, he said, uh, Trump said he's looking for judges in the mold of Antonin Scalia. And I think in Judge Moore, he may have found uh, a stream version of Antonin Scalia. Well, that's a very sobering thought, Art. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's uh, somewhat positive that the system here worked uh, for in terms of removing a judge who's clearly defying uh, the supremacy clause and denying people their constitutional rights uh, flagrantly. So um, a somewhat positive note on a very uh, sort of ridiculous series of events that we, we offered up to the readers and listeners of Law Notes for the last two years. On that note, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss how a recent parental standing ruling from New York's highest court has already been extended to a gay dad. Back, discussing how the new test for parental standing in New York is already making waves. The New York Court of Appeals overruled the old, very restrictive Allison D. Bright Line rule on August 30th in uh, a joint opinion for two cases involving uh, lesbian couples. Uh, and within a week, it was already cited by an intermediate appellate court in favor of a gay dad. Can you tell our listeners how Brooke S.B. came into play? Okay, well, Brooke S.B., which was the uh, opinion from August 30th, basically said that if a same-sex couple planned to have a child together, uh, that the child was conceived by their joint decision and that they were going to raise this child together, and this was shown by clear and convincing evidence, then the non-biological parent would have standing to seek visitation or custody in the event of a breakup and a dispute about those matters. Uh, And the new case, and it's a very interesting extension of this, involved two gay men who had lived together in New York State for several years. Uh, but did not marry when marriage equality was legislated in 2011. They did want to have a child together, and one of them had a sister who was already a mother of several children, and she had said to her brother, look, if you find the right man who you really want to form a family and raise kids together, I will be happy to be your surrogate mom. Uh, So uh, these two men decided to take her up on that offer. Uh, So the woman, Renee... Uh, was the surrogate mom, uh, and uh, Joseph was her brother, and Frank was Joseph's partner. And so through uh, the process of in vitro fertilization, that's the test tube baby situation, uh, they used Frank's sperm uh, to create some uh, embryos and to implant them into uh, Renee, and Renee actually bore twins, and uh, so she, of course, is the biological mother and the genetic mother of these twins. Frank is the biological father, and Joseph was the same-sex co-parent. And the plan was that Joseph would adopt the kids. But for some reason, they didn't go through the formal adoption proceeding. But the two men raised the child together, and as agreed with Renee, she also would play a role in the children's life, although it would not be regarded as the mother as such. So they uh, this went along for a little while. Uh, Renee had a regular continuing relationship, and uh, the, the children called the two men Da and Dad, but then the men split up, and the children 
continued to live with Frank, their biological father. Joseph continued to see them on a regular basis for a while, but then Frank cut off all contact for both Joseph and Renee uh, in May 2014, and a few months later, without any notice to them or to the court, he moved with the children to Florida. And this uh, provoked two lawsuits, one by Renee, who is the biological mother of these children and the legal mother. Uh, so she sued for custody. And uh, Joseph filed an action for guardianship, for appointment as a guardian of these children, because the Allison D case was still in effect. Yep. So under the existing law, he wouldn't have standing to seek custody. Uh, but he could apply as a de facto parent to be appointed as a guardian. Uh, and Frank, of course, moved to dismiss both cases. He said that Renee uh, had entered into an illegal surrogacy agreement because New York law bans uh, surrogacy agreements. They're not enforceable as a matter of public policy. So he said uh, Renee uh, should not have any rights here as a parent, and she wasn't acting as a parent, and that Joseph, of course, had no standing under Allison D. Uh, the family court refused to dismiss Joseph's uh, case, and Joseph, by the time it had come up to a, a motion to dismiss, he had substituted in his complaint that he, in fact, was seeking custody and visitation and recognition as a parent. Uh, so the case came up uh, to the Court of Appeals, and the, the Court, uh, not the Court, the Appellate Division, and uh, the Appellate Division, affirming the family court judge, said that under the Brooke S.B. decision, Joseph could continue to seek custody. And in a separate decision, both of these decisions were issued on September 6th, in a separate decision, they held that Renee's parental rights were still valid, that she could seek custody as well. And that creates a very interesting situation here because we have a potential, which I don't think has been recognized before under New York law, of three simultaneous legal parents. Of course, it's up to the court to decide what's in the best interest of the children, and the court may decide it's not in the best interest of these children to have three simultaneous parents because it's just not contemplated. But California has legislated to allow there to be three simultaneous Although, interestingly, parents. Interestingly, the Brooke, the Court of Appeals in Brooke had a footnote that you can only have two legal parents under New York law, which a lot of people were unhappy that they threw in that footnote because it wasn't really an issue in the case. Right. Um, but it's, then, then it's just dicta. Yeah. So who knows? But it was... Uh, this is almost like a family law uh, final in law yes, school here, this these facts. definitely final. And, and I think the interesting thing is, of course, Renee uh, has a strong genetic and biological claim mm -hmm. to parentage, but then she did not treat them as her children after they were born. She gave them up to the two men, and but they did agree to allow her a continuing role in the children's life. Uh, so a court is going to have to decide here what's in the best interest of the children. It could be because of the way Frank was really misbehaving in the situation that he will lose out and that uh, brother and sister will parent these children. But that would be very unusual yeah. for ch children to have uh, a father who is uh, the sister or the brother of their mother. Yes. Um, Talk about uh, sort of a twist on the old Oedipus complex. <laughs> I think another... Um Irony this case highlights is the idea that, uh, as you mentioned, sur surrogacy agreements are uh, unenforceable under New York law. But the Court of Appeals said in Brooke uh, that you need a preconception agreement for this uh, parental new parental standing test. So right. it's interesting that these agreements are illegal in one context, but now sort of 
called for in this new context. And and also uh, the the court notes in the decision on Renee's petition that uh, the statute that makes surrogacy agreements unenforceable also provides that they can't be used against the biological mother in a subsequent custody dispute. So, you know, she has a pretty strong claim here uh, based on her actual parentage, uh, biological and genetic parentage of the children. Uh, The only person who's not biologically or genetically related to these uh, children in this whole triad doesn't exist because Joseph is their uncle, right? right? So just to uh, yeah. just to complicate things a little. So I, I think this is a fascinating case. Absolutely. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, there's an attempt for a further repeal here. Uh, so we may end up seeing the Court of Appeals getting involved again. Stay tuned. All right. We will take another short break. And when we return, we'll shift to another appellate division in New Jersey, Uh, that threw out the entire 2012 conviction of Tyler Clemente's Rutgers roommate. All right, we are back to talk about a significant development in the criminal conviction of Darren Ravi, uh, the roommate of Rutgers University freshman Tyler Clemente, who... uh, uh, amidst sort of international media attention in 2010, uh, committed suicide only days after Ravi spied on him via webcam uh, when he was having a sexual encounter with another man in their shared dorm room. Uh, to explain this case, we've got to go back a little bit uh, to 2015, um, and we covered this in the podcast uh, then if you are a longtime listener. But in 2015, uh, the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, ruled in the case of State versus Pomianic that the state's bias intimidation law, or a subsection of the state's bias intimidation law, was unconstitutional. Um, And sort of to give even more context, basically in 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court had struck down New Jersey's previous hate crimes law. And when they rewrote it, they added this very unique uh, subsection uh, that was the only statute in the country that authorized a bias crime conviction based on the victim's perception that the defendant committed the offense with the purpose to intimidate, regardless of whether the defendant actually had the purpose to intimidate. Um, and on March 17, 2015, the New Jersey Supreme Court unanimously struck down that subsection as violating the due process clause of the 14th Amendment um, under the sort of void for vagueness doctrine um, in, involving the idea that um, criminal law in, in, in the United States uh, requires that the uh, defendant have the intent to commit the crime, uh, the concept of mens rea. Um, and, 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 of course, someone who is committing a crime is supposed to theoretically be aware of what's legal and what's not legal right. based on criminal statutes. But in this case, the statute premises illegality on the perceptions of the victim yeah. rather than on the conduct of the defendant. So how can the defendant accord his conduct with the law if he doesn't know what the victim will think it's all about? It requires him to read the, the victim's mind right. almost. Um, so this happened in 2015. Uh, back up again uh, to – so the events involving Tyler Clemente happened in September 2010. Um, many of you will remember the facts of the case, but basically Tyler Clemente and Darren Ravi were assigned as freshman roommates – uh, at Rutgers, um, one night Tyler asked to use their sort of joint, if he could have the joint dorm room to himself. Um, Darren noticed that 
Tyler had invited over sort of a strange uh, man that he didn't know um, and sort of in a very uh, um, sort of horrible uh, turn of events, he decided to sort of spy on them while he was outside of the room and he was very sort of computer savvy. He knew how to go to a friend's room down the hall and uh, remotely activate his computer's webcam, which was at the time he had turned to focus on Tyler's bed. Um, and Darren and a friend, for a few seconds, watched uh, Tyler and this man kissing. Um, he then tweeted about the uh, to his friends that this was happening. He tweeted that they could join him in watching. Um, Several days later, Tyler asked for the room again. Uh, Darren again tweeted that uh, it was happening again and that people could watch um, watch it again with him if they were interested. Uh, thankfully, Tyler uh, had caught on to what was going on and had seen some of his roommate's tweets, and he decided to turn off uh, Darren's computer before meeting this man again. Uh, so the second attempt to, to watch uh, was foiled. Um, but in the meantime, uh, because Tyler had seen what uh, Darren had posted on Twitter, he wrote an email to, um, or he filed an, a report with the sort of online housing administration system at Rutgers saying he wanted a new roommate because this happened. He also spoke to his RA saying that this happened, he was very uncomfortable, and he wanted a, a, a new roommate, at least, if not a, a single room. Um, uh, unfortunately, though, it seems that things got much bleaker for him in his mind, and he uh, decided to... Um, he posted on Facebook that he was going to jump off the George Washington Bridge, and then he was, his body was later found that he, uh, he did do that. Um, at the time, this was a huge... became a huge media firestorm. The gay community sort of rallied behind Tyler as a victim of uh, really horrible bullying. The family created a foundation that is now doing really cutting-edge work on uh, anti-bullying uh, issues. Um, and the local prosecutor um, decided to prosecute Darren Ravi uh, under a sort of a list of different charges, but the, the leading charge uh, was this bias intimidation under this special, what's known, what was then known as subsection A3, of the, bi the state bias intimidation law. And they really framed uh, their, their prosecution around what the appellate court and the latest opinion calls the twin pillars of sort of Darren being this very computer savvy but also homophobic uh, roommate who decided to take advantage of Tyler um, you know, by by watching by watching him and broadcasting it to friends who would have known to to follow who were following uh, Darren on Twitter. And meanwhile, uh, Tyler was a very shy uh, student who had just really started coming out of the closet, uh, was very uh, sort of fragile, and was extremely upset when he found out that people were watching him uh, with another man. Um, so this was sort of the, the bread and butter of the prosecution. Uh, there was, a, of course, uh, other charges were... Um, See if I can find them here. Hindering prosecution, invasion of privacy, tampering with evidence. Some of that involved. There was a series of text messages between him and the friend that he had, whose room he had gone to while Tyler was was using the room by himself, and some text messages with her telling her when the police started questioning them, you know, you know, what did you say to her? Don't tell them this. Do tell them that. 
Um, so he, that was part of the, the prosecution as well. But really, um, the appellate division sort of highlighted the sort of closing that the prosecutor did uh, before giving the case to the jury that really centered on uh, Tyler's state of mind and what he had said to the to the RA and what he had um, uh, what how upset he was about what had uh, what had happened. Um, anyway, now that in 2015, when the statute sub subsection of the statute got struck down as unconstitutional, um, it became pretty clear that Darren at least was going to. Um, the conviction would at least be vacated on the counts involving that subsection. Um, but the prosecution, uh, excuse me, the appellate court uh, determined that really the, the evidence I was just mentioning permeated and tainted the whole case, that that was really what um, the jury came away with as, as being the, the center, the heart of the case, and that therefore um, they couldn't... Uh, couldn't uh, fairly um, let the the entire conviction had to be thrown out uh, because this really tainted everything that the the jury heard. Yeah, this Um, is a very interesting point that the court seems to recognize that all of the other claims, all the other counts of the conviction, there was substantial evidence to support them. Uh, The other provisions of the hate crimes law, uh, although that was a little bit weaker, uh, I think the, the conclusion was that Ravi was not necessarily an extreme homophobe, but that he was an immature young man who was a bit freaked out about having a gay roommate, and uh, that uh, some of the what he was doing was sort of acting out from his own fears. But in addition, uh, it was clear that there was evidence to support the witness tampering charges and the interference with the investigation and things of that sort. Uh, but the court said the problem is... The jury heard all this evidence, and we can't really tell the degree to which the evidence about Clementi's own perceptions and how this affected him permeated the entire trial and may have affected the uh, jury's decision to convict on every count. That if that evidence hadn't been let in, they might have been much more selective about which counts they convicted on. Uh, and it certainly would have affected the sentencing as well, although the sentencing was criticized as being much too mild. But the court, as you pointed out in your article about this, Matt wrote the article for this issue of Law Notes, uh, the court was very, very condemnatory towards the end of the opinion of what Ravi had done here. Yes, they said, the social environment that transformed a private act of sexual intimacy into a grotesque, voyeuristic spectacle must be unequivocally condemned in the strongest possible way. The fact that this occurred in a university dormitory housing first-year college students only exacerbates our collective sense of disbelief and disorientation. All of the young men and women who had any association with this tragedy must pause to reflect and assess whether this experience has cast an indelible moral shadow on their character. So, pretty strong stuff. Yeah, but it, it did throw the case back to the prosecutor which can institute a new trial if they want to. Uh, And uh, there was no immediate uh, decision. Uh, A a motion was filed by the acting county prosecutor asking the appeals court to reconsider the decision to overturn the entire conviction Uh, because a, a clear recognition by the court that there was enough evidence in the record to sustain various of the other counts. Uh, and they also said that there were some factual errors in the record that should be corrected. But if that motion is not granted, 
then the prosecutor has to make a decision. Do we go back? Do we retry this guy? And Ravi did serve out his sentence. He did his community service. He did his very brief stint in the county jail. He paid his fine. Uh, so there's some question whether it makes sense to prosecute him all over again. And I, I, th- I know the, you know, it's it's unclear, I think, whether the family would even want that. I think reliving the trial again would probably be very painful and maybe not something they're, although I think upset about uh, that this whole conviction was overturned, I don't know that they would want to have the, the trial again, you know. Um, so a, a significant development in that case, which I know we, we covered a lot along the way, and uh, we'll see what happens, I guess. Uh, we'll take our last short break, and when we return, we'll discuss how a federal court judge's granting of a motion to dismiss still highlights a larger problem with New York City police. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. In a decision notably lacking in empathy for transgender people and the slights and humiliations they suffer on a regular basis, U.S. District Judge Gregory H. Woods granted New York City's motion to dismiss the complaint by Marlo White, self-identified as a man of transgender experience, that his 14th Amendment rights were violated by NYPD officers and the city when the police failed to respond to the continued verbal harassment of White by Napoleon Monroe, a man who frequented the neighborhood, where White lived and made various threats against him, as well as subjecting him to verbal harassment. Can you tell us about the about the case and why else it matters, Art? Yeah, uh, this was a case uh, where, due to the various technicalities of constitutional tort law, New York City and the police officers in question escaped any liability uh, because of qualified immunity and also because the Second Circuit has not yet ruled on the question whether gender identity discrimination is sex discrimination and thus subject to heightened scrutiny. Uh, I think that if heightened scrutiny had applied here and we had a well-established precedent in the Second Circuit, it's possible that the individual police officers would lose their qualified immunity. Uh, In in this case, uh, White had sought help from the police. When police officers arrived and they discovered the person who sought their help was a transgender person, they treated him with disrespect. Uh, They bristled at dealing with him, uh, and they indicated a sort of cavalier attitude towards his welfare. Uh, Now, it may be that they were technically correct, that they couldn't really do anything to uh, this uh, Napoleon Monroe character because all he had done was to make verbal threats. He hadn't actually assaulted White. Uh, and constitutional law here gives a lot of discretion to police officers to decide on a case-by-case basis how to respond to a particular situation. So it's possible that uh, Judge Woods was correct to grant the motion to dismiss in this case. But what this case points out is a problem in the NYPD. And I don't know the degree to which Uh, the law department or the police department's legal counsel office monitors these kinds of decisions and thinks about what should we be doing as a matter of policy. Not what must we do as a matter of the Constitution, but what we should do as a matter of policy in a city that has added to its human rights law gender identity and expression. And it's, it's a matter of city policy that we don't discriminate, and yet our police officers do discriminate. And the court said, in fact, that uh, if this was a heightened scrutiny case, they probably would have found an equal protection claim 
on behalf of Mr. White. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, the police department and the uh, city law department should be looking at this and reacting to it and thinking about ways to educate police officers about the appropriate way to treat all citizens with dignity, including those of diverse gender identity. And on that point, I, the um, Legal Aid Society and Cleary Gottlieb have recently filed a, a constitutional challenge to the state uh, loitering statute, um, saying that the New York City police use it as a sort of uh, pretextual uh, a basis to sort of target transgender women of color here in the city. So there's... Um, uh, you know, a, a new lawsuit that might uh, force the force the police department to think about this as well, um, and, and sort of maybe question what their their standard practice is as regarding that community. But I just wish that our new police commissioner and our corporation council would read the factual allegations in this opinion, yeah. and maybe I'll send them a copy. Um, but it is it's troubling and depressing. So um, hopefully we can uh, see some change on this front. All right, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you enjoy the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in November. 